0: Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death, in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together.
1: What's
0: up, guys? It's Sean here.
1: If you are new to Forensic Miles, welcome. We're so excited to have you join our little family. Uh, Forensic Miles is the unofficial companion podcast to the cult favorite show Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Hint, hint, there literally always is.
0: (laughs) There's only so much you can fit in a 30 minute episode.
1: So true. Today, we're going to be covering the Forensic Files episode Two in a Million. And this covers the Yule family massacre. So I'll just say right now this story is huge and there is so much information on it. Um, If you're interested, I would highly encourage you to kind of look it up and I'll post all my resources and references for you in the show notes Um, because you can really fall into a rabbit hole here with the whole investigation and it's pretty fascinating how they were able to catch murderers. Two days after Easter on Tuesday, April 21st, 1992 in Fresno, California, a housekeeper headed to her employer's home. The employers were Dale and Glee Yule, and she arrived at the house around 9 a.m. She had recently received some sort of communication that Dana, the Yule's the college aged child, had not heard from his parents in a couple days and wanted to check up on them. So he had her kind of go over to the home to check. Upon entering the home, the housekeeper was met with a horrific discovery. Dale, Glee, and their oldest daughter, 24-year-old Tiffany, were all dead in the home. The house had been completely ransacked. Things were scattered everywhere, and everything had been taken out of Dale's wallet. You see, the Ewell family was extremely wealthy, and they had all been extremely successful in their own right. Dale, who was 60 at the time of his death, had become a multi-millionaire with his company, Western Piper Sales, Inc., which sold small airplanes. Although they lived uh, modestly and they didn't flaunt their wealth, the Ewell family estate was estimated at $8 million. Wow. He was described as a great businessman because he was extremely outgoing and personable. And he was also really good looking, which I'm sure helped a lot with his business. His wife Glee, was also successful in her public service and was dedicated to philanthropy. She had been uh, she had also worked in the CIA for a short time translating Spanish. and she was also on the board of something that I believe granted people like their lawyer license or something like that. They're, I'm not really sure. Dale and Glee had been married 31 years at the time of their deaths. Their daughter, Tiffany, was a graduate student at Fresno State University after receiving a degree in finance from Santa Clara University. So she was really, you know, kind of starting her life. Dana, who was, again, the only person that survived this um, crime, was uh, was currently a student at Santa Clara University and was also extremely successful, even having an article written about him in the CSU yearbook about how he was, you know, a quote-unquote self-made millionaire. He was extremely smart too, with a I supposedly with an IQ of one eighty. And let's just talk right here about the self-made because, (laughs) um, you know, I think this came out with Kylie Jenner as well. You know, self-made when you're already a millionaire. You know, I don't know. But moving right along, definitely helps. Helps the process. So basically, Dana wasn't at the house during the massacre, and we'll get more into that later. But that is basically why he survived. During Easter of 1992, the Yule family celebrated at their beach house in Paro Dunes, California. They had a wonderful afternoon, they had lunch, and then they walked on the beach, after which the family kind of separated and went their own ways. Dana left the home at around 2.15 to 2.30 and headed to his girlfriend Monica Zent's house. and She lived in Morgan Hill, California. And he basically spent dinner... Easter dinner with her and her family and later that night they returned back to school together it's not known for sure when but glee and tiffany headed back to the fresno home together so they drove together followed soon after um, by the father dale around 3 30 dale returned home to fresno by plane investigators presumed that glee and tiffany got home first and the killer was already in the home I think one of the scariest things about this crime is that the family never saw this coming. They couldn't have known that somebody was already in their home when they returned home. And they hardly walked a couple feet into the house before they were murdered. Tiffany was found dead on the kitchen floor. She had been shot once in the back of the head. Glee was laying on her side, kind of like half half facing forward, half with her stomach on the ground. Um, and she had been shot four times. One of the shots hit her below the eye. So investigators actually think that she saw her murderer. That
0: would be terrible. Yeah. For like a split second. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. Dale returned home later, they think about 30 minutes after his wife and daughter. But the killer stayed in the home until he until he got back. And he was shot once in the back of his neck. Like I said, investigators knew at this point that the killer was already in the home before the family arrived, um, and there was no sign of forced entry. But that wasn't the only thing that they found on the scene. In Dale and Glee's bedroom, they found a box of 9mm bullets that had dropped on the floor and basically scattered everywhere. After investigation, they discovered that the family had been killed with 9mm gun. So...
0: They look like they're in bullets, or...
1: Yes. Jeez. Yes. And so this is kind of enlightening a little bit. But let me backtrack, backtrack a little bit. After testing the bullets from the victims and the ones found in the bedroom, they were able to compare tool marks on the heel of the bullet, which is basically like, I'm pretty sure, the flat part on the bottom. They were able to determine that they were, in fact, a match. So this basically means that whoever broke into the home came knowing that there were bullets in the home for them to use. They knew the house code and they knew the family wasn't going to be home because the family also had an alarm system that was turned off by using the code. Wow. So basically at this point, they conclude that the burglary was staged and the motive for entry into the home was solely to kill the Yule family and that whoever had done this, Was, it was like an inside job. They must have known the Yule family, or you know, known about them in some way.
0: Yeah, because otherwise they would have just like cut the power Mm -hmm. to the house and just like totally took out the security system
1: and brought their own bullets. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So the bullets were kind of a big lead at this point. Um, And they start to do a little bit of investigating to see if they can track down where the bullets had been purchased from the serial number. They were able to pinpoint the store that they were sold at. And upon asking the store manager, if he kept records of the sales, the man said that he did, he had 30 years of sales receipts and they were actually able to find the exact or or Dale's receipt um, from the purchase of the bullets. And he, I guess had purchased them for his Browning pistol In 1971, so this is 1992 when the murder took place, this man had kept the sales receipt from 1971, so that's pretty incredible. They know now with 100% certainty that the bullets were purchased by Dale um, for his gun, and they weren't brought in by somebody else, so that's pretty scary. But the other thing that is scary is that this gun that he had originally bought these bullets for was also missing from the home. So, I don't know, it's it's pretty horrible to think that he purchased these for his protection and they ended up being what took his life. And I was kind of just thinking about this recently, this is a little bit tangential, but with this coronavirus, I've been making masks using fabric that I had around the house. And it's super bright and colorful fabric that, you know, I originally bought to sew mo mow some dress shirts and now I'm using them to make coronavirus masks for this global pandemic that we're having. So it's kind of interesting, you know, how life works, I suppose. So at this point, they don't really have any suspects. Every person who had keys or access to the home had solid alibis, including Dana. It turns out that Dana's girlfriend's father, John Zent, was an FBI agent. Like, you couldn't have a more solid alibi than spending Easter dinner with an FBI agent.
0: Yeah, seriously not get much better than that.
1: But even with this solid alibi, investigators start to notice some strange behavior from Dana. During the reading of the will, some interesting situations occur. When his uncle said that there were no instructions on burial, Dana basically said, Okay, but what about the money?
0: Wow. Mm hmm. It couldn't even, like, take
1: time to grieve. Nope. Nothing at all. As the sole beneficiary of the estate, Dana stood to inherit the whole $8 million. Now, it's kind of important to note that if Tiffany had lived, they would have had to split the inheritance, and each would have gotten $4 million. But, you know, Tiffany did not survive, and so he would be getting the whole $8 million. What he didn't realize was that Dale had set up a trust, and Dana... Exactly. Dana didn't have access to the money until he was 25, so that was about four years away. And supposedly, he was pissed. He didn't, like, say anything, but he was visibly upset when this was read. It turns out that Monica Zent's father, John Zent, the FBI agent, had actually told Dale immediately to contact family friends to check on his parents because Dale had Talked to John like the day after Easter and told them him that he couldn't get in contact with his parents. And John immediately told them or told him to have somebody check on them. But Dana waited two whole days mm-hmm. before sending anybody to check on his family. But that's not the only interesting things that happen. Supposedly Dana was still living in the house for some time after the murders. Even though the crime scene had still not been completely clean up cleaned up, like there was still blood, there was still tissue, and there was still brain tissue visible in the home. Wow! Yeah, he also gave one of his friends a tour of the house and basically told him that the police were too stupid to ne- and would never be able to solve the crime.
0: While police were like there, they. Ha- heard him say that or this was just like
1: no this the friend friend later came forward and said that Mm -hmm. and so that's something to note throughout this entire investigation dana basically made fun of the police and were basically taunting them about how stupid they were how they would never solve the crime and on and on and on and you know i think this kind of lit a little bit of a fire underneath police um their, their butts they really wanted to solve this crime so with the suspicious activity in mind, investigators decide to reach out to Dana's friend, Joel uh, Radovich. Um, they had at, at some point been roommates at CSU, but had remained friends, for, you know, for years. Sorry, I said CSU, but I meant SCU. Joel was contacted by one of the investigators who mentioned that she was investigating a triple homicide in Fresno. Basically, Immediately after she said this, Joel asks, Are you going to arrest me?
0: So he already knows exactly what, what murder um,
1: she's asking about. Yep, he knows exactly what she's talking about. This immediately brought on suspicion that he was involved in some way. Through conversations with Joel, they found Joel actually knew the family pretty well. And he spent time with them on a few occasions at both properties, the Fresno home and the beach house. He also mentioned something else. It seemed that Dana was trying to pass his father's millionaire status on as his own, telling people that he made his money by selling airplanes. So remember that article that I was telling you about at the beginning that he had written about him saying that he was a self-made millionaire and that he was very successful. Yeah. Turns out, It was a complete lie. He was just very cocky, very obsessed with money. And in reality, he was kind of a loner and didn't really have very many friends and had plagiarized a paper in school.
0: Did he, like, even work for the family for his dad or no? Uh,
1: Not as far as I know. (laughs) I don't think so. I think, I mean, no, I don't think so. So this is all pretty, you know eye-opening for the investigation supposedly Dale was you know had found out about his son's lying and told him that he was no longer going to financially support Dana Mm. so I don't know if that specifically specifically means he was not going to pay for his school he wasn't going to pay for his life or he was going to totally take him out of the will but there had been some sort of a conversation about Dana no longer being financially supported by the family anymore Surprisingly, it also seemed that Joel was living in this Fresno home with Dana after the murders. What? Yep, and they had been, and he had been spotted there around June, nineteen ninety-two, um, without so, Dana. So a couple months after. So a couple months after he was living in this house with Dana, which is weird. First of all, it's weird that Dana's even living in the house. But it's weird that this other kid is also living with him. After some investigation into his finances, police discovered that Joel was living well out of his means. I mean, Joel did not have it. First of all, Joel didn't even have a job. So he didn't really have any money of his own. But he was spending money on some really kind of interesting things. He was taking helicopter flight lessons airplane flight lessons and I couldn't find the exact number but it looks like he paid these people an insane amount of money for him to receive all of his flight certifications alone so this doesn't even include any of the helicopter flight lessons it would have been around $43,000 at minimum wow this kid doesn't have a job he's not making money and supposedly he only ever paid in cash and it was usually all $100 bills and guess who took their money out of their account solely in 100 dollar bills and nah. 50s? You oh. got it. <laughs> Dana. So it looked as though Dana was financially er, financing Joel's entire life at this point, which is a little bit odd. Yeah. Surveillance was placed on Joel around 1993 and continued on and off for, you know, a couple years. They were able to discover that Joel only ever spoke on a nearby phone at a 7-11. So this is like a payphone at a 7-11. LOL. I can't even remember the last time I saw a payphone. But he would never, you know, talk on his home phone. He only ever talked on this 7-11 payphone. And they found that, you know, he would kind of check his beeper and then he would call the number on his beeper. During one call, an undercover cop stood next to him at the other payphone and pretended to be on the phone. He overheard him talking about getting a lawyer and whether the person on the other line was "quote unquote" getting any heat. The call traced back to Dana's dorm room.
0: So was Joel like not in school anymore? I because weren't they roommates, Joel and Dana? They
1: weren't roommates at the time of the murder. They initially, I think, they had been roommates like early on in their college Um, career. But now they're kind of like in their mid college career. I don't know whether or not Joel is still in school, but at this point. It's Dana not is. Like it. <laughs> yeah, but Dana is still at school. In another call also overheard by an undercover cop, Joel was talking about a quarter million dollars and stocks and said he wanted to travel the world. So he's talking about a lot of money. He's talking about his future with a lot of money. But this kid does not have any money.
0: <laughs> so I've never used a beeper and don't really know too much about them. Can you track a beeper the same as you could like Just a regular cell phone?
1: I'm not 100% sure about that, but I will get into the beeper a little bit later because there are some interesting things about this beeper. What I think they did was they pulled the phone records from the public phone, and they were able to trace it that way. On April sixteenth, nineteen 1993, Joel did something a little bit unusual. He paged a guy named Jack Ponce. It turns out that Jack is the lifelong best friend of Joel's older brother, Peter. This is kind of interesting, after Joel got this pager, the investigator was able to issue a search warrant to get a clone made of the pager, mm-hmm. therefore receiving all notifications that he had. Mm-hmm. So, to answer your question, I don't know if they can track it, but she was able to make a clone. That's the next <laughs> <best> thing. <laughs> yep. And another little kind of interesting tidbit is that somewhere along the line, Joel actually suspected that somebody was listening to his calls. And he ended up getting a new number for his pager. And the investigator was just able to clone that pager, too. So they were always able to kind of pick He's up on who not as news.
0: smart as he was thinking he was being.
1: No. <laughs> no. So this basically introduces Jack Ponce to the crime. Um, or having something to do with what happened. On March 2nd, 1995, a search warrant is issued for Joel's mother's home. This is where he had been living, so I'm not really sure when he moved out of that Fresno home, but he was living with his mother in 1995. They discover some interesting things. Drill bits that contained forensic material that matched forensic material found on Glee's body, including some green fibers that were consistent with tennis balls. They were presumably used to make a makeshift silencer for the gun. Wow.
0: He still has them after three years almost.
1: Yep. Yep. It turns out that Joel had purchased some books that contained instructions on how to make a silencer. So these were like, quote unquote, spy type books, Um, but we'll get into that a little bit later. All this was told to investigators by Jack Ponce. On March 2nd, 1995, Jack was arrested on three counts of murder. And when he heard this, he immediately started to sing like a canary. Like he did not want any part of it. And he was actually granted immunity um, for telling Um, investigators what happened. Peter was also detained. So Peter is um, Joel's older brother, but was released after agreeing to testify against his brother in court. So Peter had some information about the crime as well. Investigators knew that Jack had a nine millimeter gun and originally he, he had told them that he had purchased it to kill possums in his attic. Okay, weird. (laughs) And it had gone missing um, wrong Once he was arrested, he basically told investigators everything. Jack had said that his gun was not missing, surprise, surprise, and that he had sold the gun to Joel. A few days later, Joel gave the gun back to Jack and told him to get rid of it. He basically handed Jack and Peter, the older brother, a backpack that contained the gun, tennis shoes, cut tennis balls, spy-type books, and other stuff, including Dale's missing handgun.
0: Wait, so why did, why did he need to take Dale's handgun if he bought the other one?
1: Well, he didn't want to use, I don't know, he didn't want to use Dale's handgun. He wanted to use something else. But he basically gave it to his brother and Jack to get rid of it and dispose of it in some way. And they do. Jack and Peter take the gun apart and scatter it all around Los Angeles. But one of the pieces, the barrel of the gun, they aren't able to destroy, and they basically bury it in a vacant lot. Amazingly, investigators were able to dig it up three years later. And this is amazing because, I don't know if you live in L.A., but for a lot, this is what investigators like are so amazed by. This lot was vacant for three years. Nobody built on it. Nobody poured cement on it. It was just a dirt lot, which is pretty amazing for yeah being in Los Angeles. So they're basically able to dig up the barrel of the gun um, and match it to the bullets that were used to kill the Yule family. Also, this plot is discovered near Peter's apartment. So Peter admits to helping hide the evidence and after agreeing to testify against his brother, he's released and he's good to go. Around April 29th, 1992, um, something kind of interesting happened. Now, I don't know if you know too much about this date, but this was the beginning of the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. And that day, or around that day, Jack and Joel start to have a conversation about what happened the night of the murders. So some presume because of these Rodney King riots, Joel is kind of having some regret or some sort of feelings bubbling to the surface about what he did to tell somebody he wants to tell someone he wants to get it off his chest so joel admitted that he had shot and killed three people he didn't specifically say their names but jack knew exactly who he was talking about joel said that he had shaved his entire body before entering the home Mm -hmm. he said that he had laid down plastic sheeting and was there so long that he actually slept for a while before Ah. the family arrived he told Jack that the family had, quote-unquote, lush digs. Whatever that means. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> Joel described the crime exactly as a police suspected. Tiffany Tiffany was killed first. He mentioned that he didn't think Glee had heard the shot because she continued talking to Tiffany, which is really sad to think about. Oh, wow. She seriously did not know anything was happening. He said that he shot Glee, But she saw him. And this is horrible. Investigators and Joel think that she actually recognized him. Like I said before, she knew him. He had been at her house on a couple occasions. um, And she probably knew that her son was involved in this crime. He then said that he waited a while and Dale returned home and he killed him too. He said, quote, I hope there's no God. If there is, I'm screwed. Uh-huh. In March of 1995, both Dana and Joel are arrested. After a trial, J- uh, Dana was convicted of triple murder and sentenced to three life sentences without parole. Joel was convicted and sentenced to the same. Wow. The story is a horrible one about a greedy boy who cared more about money and presumably his friendship with Joel than he did his family.
0: It's so weird that he would do this for the money. But then he's just like totally fine with splitting it with Joel
1: and, and not his sister. Exactly. And <laughs> there are, I'll get into it a little bit later, but there are some other strange things that he ends up spending the money on. Investigators say that the uh, the relationship between Dana and Joel was part of the reasons that they were caught. They stuck together. Like Dana was basically financing his entire life and living in the home where his parents were murdered. Like it was all just a weird situation. Um, And they just say that this relationship between them was like insanely strong, insanely like, I don't know, it just felt weird to them. Mm. There's only one mention that I found of them being in some sort of a relationship that was more than just friendship, but I have no evidence to substantiate that. Um, But it was really this friendship that made police be like, hey, something's off here. Like, this is weird. Yeah, I think it's important to note that some believe that Jack had a lot more to do with the murders than he let on. Um, but I don't think that anybody suspects that he was the one to pull the trigger. Like, it is confirmed that Joel was the one to actually commit the murders. Ultimately, the case reminded many of the Lyle and Eric Menendez case, um, who had similar motives in killing their parents, Kitty and Jose Menendez. This and if you check out the pictures on our Instagram, I don't know if you think this, but I think that Joel actually kind of resembles the Menendez brothers, which is a little bit weird. This case is honestly so scary to think that somebody that close to you, like your son, would do something like this to you when you've like they haven't done anything to deserve this. Like Dana lived a very Lush, cushy life. He just wanted more and he wanted it to be his own and not his family's.
0: It's so weird.
1: I think it's clear that the murder had been planned for a long time and supposedly it was common knowledge that Monica Zent's father was an FBI agent. And this kind of makes you think did Dana intentionally get into a relationship with Monica to have a strong alibi?
0: That would be like absolutely
1: psychopathic behavior. Yeah. Um, I agree. It's totally crazy. Another point that is often talked about is the fact that Dana was super smart. I mean like he had an IQ of 180. He was convinced that he was smarter than the police and he made fun of them constantly, harassing them on the phone, making up nicknames for them. But police were on to him from early on and they just wanted to make sure that they had all the evidence that they needed to convict him and put him into jail like, the first time they tried, yeah. which they were able to do. Um, I think this just goes to show, even if you look book smart, or that even if you are book smart, it doesn't mean that you have common sense. Yeah. Just one more thing to show that these boys weren't as smart as they thought they were, and, yeah, I will continue to refer to them as boys, even though they're in their mid-20s, because they were greedy children, and they don't deserve to be called men, in my opinion. <laughs> um... So remember that pager turns out that the number was intentionally selected by Joel. It was five, four, five five, two, five, seven. Want to know what that stands for? Hmm. K I L L a J R Killa J R Killa Joel R. Like what absolute dummies? Oh, wow. Like dummies. So now I'm going to get into this one other kind of interesting thing. And I will say right now, this is not my belief. I have no idea what happened. I'm just stating the information that I found online. Um, So please don't sue us. Was Monica Zent more involved than she let on to be? And now I will get into it. According to one article I found on a website called Soapbox.com, so, I don't know, take it with a grain of salt, Monica was with Dana when police went uh, to him claiming they believed Joel had murdered his family. I only saw this in two places. But supposedly, after they came to tell Dana this, and, you know, Dana obviously went white in the face, after the police left, Dana and Monica headed over to a payphone, and made a call. Do you know who they called? Yeah. Joel. Monica called Joel. Called Joel. Nice. So Monica might have had a motive for um, being involved with this murder as well, and it was basically the same as everybody else's motive: money. Um, there is evidence that Dana's, or you know, the blood money basically helped her get through law school. So currently she is the founder of Zent Law in California and was once contacted by somebody who was basically trying to expose her past. It was like kind of a threatening email that was sent to um, the company that she was working for. She ended up suing them and leaving behind a paper trail essentially of the evidence. So it's like public knowledge on the internet right now. Basically after the murders, Monica remained involved with Dana. He helped her pay for her law school. It seems as though at the at some point after the murders, Dana was award- awarded power of attorney over his grandmother, Glee Mitchell, um, who was living in, you know, a, like a old folks home. Uh,
0: assisted living.
1: Assisted living. Um, and so he was now responsible for her health care. So Dana basically had access to all of his grandmother's finances. And it looks as though Dana, Joel, and Monica basically spent the money on themselves. was paid to Santa Clara University, which is where Monica was in school. In addition to the $17,000, Monica received about $40,000, like an extra $40,000 that she spent on, um, I think, like books and other stuff. Although she had been questioned and investigators, police could not find any proof that she was involved at all. She was not helpful, helpful during the investigation, though, and ended up breaking up with Dana right after the arrest. Her father testified for the defense during the trial and had only good things to say about Dana. So, I don't know. It's a little strange. Um, She had to have known that that money was coming from Dana's murdered family. Like, I don't know. That's a lot of money. Supposedly, she had a car as well that was purchased for her. Wow. So, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Moving right along to the Where They Are Now section of this podcast (laughs) – Dana is still in prison and has no more appeals. So basically, he is in prison for the rest of his life. There was nothing else that can be done for him. You can write him, though. He is on a website called inmate.com as a potential pen pal. Oh, wow. Yep. His profile says that he has found God. The quote at the top is a C.S. Lewis quote, and it says, Experience the most brutal teacher. My God, do you learn? Wow. Yep. He also says... I was beginning my career in investment banking when some extraordinarily painful events turned my life upside wow. down. So, basically insinuating that he had absolutely nothing to do with the murder of his parents and his sister.
0: Wait, so, how how was he only given the three life sentences? Why wouldn't he have been given, like, a um, like capital murder, like, death sentence? Because it was clearly premeditated.
1: I don't really know. I'm not actually sure about that. Um, but he was, I mean, he's sentenced to life in prison. It's almost worse. Yeah. So I'm not really sure. Um, an interesting fact is that Dana is actually, or Dana is housed at the same prison that Charles Manson was. Hmm. Yeah. Um, at some point, I believe Joel had also had an account to become a pen pal, but I could not find that. He is also in prison and doesn't have any more um, appeals, so he'll be there forever as well. Supposedly, Jack Ponce is also a lawyer, but I couldn't find any proof or any picture of him, so I'm not sure if this guy that I'm that I keep si- finding Jack Ponce with like the um, a law degree and uh, working in a lawyer's office is the actual the same guy. I've never seen a picture of Jack Ponce. Um, even in the Forensic Files episode, they don't show his face, so I'm not really sure about that. But that is basically it. All this info doesn't even touch upon everything that happened in this case. So like I said at the beginning, if you're interested, I encourage you to check it out. Um, Some of my resources. It goes so in-depth. Like there was so much evidence on these kids. Um, It's crazy. And they were obviously following them for three years. Um, So if you're interested, I would encourage you to go down that rabbit hole.
0: Definitely. It's definitely interesting.
1: Yeah. Alright, well thank you guys so much. We're so excited that you came and listened and we hope that you enjoyed the episode. We make new episodes every Tuesday, so get ready for next Tuesday's episode.
0: Give us a five star rating if you
1: haven't already. Yep, you can follow us on Instagram at Forensic Miles and on Twitter at Forensic Miles and on Facebook at (laughs) Forensic Miles. So, that's about it. Hope you guys have a great day and stay safe and stay healthy.
0: See you guys later.
1: Bye.